0: Well, today we're continuing in this season of Epiphany, and I keep telling you what it's about because it's the first time that we've celebrated it, so repetition is the mother of learning. It's a season in which we focus specifically upon the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as the Savior of the world. And in this study that we're doing in the book of Luke now, today in this season, we come to Luke chapter 6, where we come with it to the topic of the Sabbath, which immediately raises the question of, okay, well then, Tom, what is the Sabbath? Because what we're going to see as we jump into these two stories and they're connected is the Sabbath is the issue. And what we'll find is that we'll have Jesus over here and we'll have the Pharisees over here, and what they're quarreling over is, in fact... The Sabbath, and what we're going to see as well is that Jesus is highly critical of the interpretation of the Sabbath that these guys have brought to this particular topic and here's what we'll do if we're not careful. What we'll do is run very quickly over to the side of Jesus and then stand over there with Jesus and point our fingers at the Pharisees too and say, you know what, Jesus is right, you guys are wrong, you have interpreted the Sabbath and you've regulated it with all of your little laws in such a way as to completely miss the heart of the Sabbath and we'll do that if we're not careful without at the same time recognizing that yes, whereas they have missed the heart of the Sabbath, most of us every week miss the Sabbath altogether. Altogether. together. I mean, I kind of want to come to their defense a little bit and say, look, I, I understand Jesus is the good guy and they're the bad guys, and they have blown it in regard to the Sabbath and other significant ways as well, but, but they lived as though it existed. And man, did they spend a lot of time and effort trying to scrupulously observe it. Okay. Well, there is something in that. So then what is the Sabbath? Because I'm just going to talk about it at its core. At its core, the Sabbath is the mandate of God. Do you hear that? Because that's different from a suggestion, isn't it? Like when you're working with your kids, you know, and you've asked them to clean their room like 53 thousand times over the course of the week, and it's three o'clock, and there's a friend, you're supposed to go over to their house at 3.30, and they still haven't cleaned their room, and you come to them, you don't come with a suggestion typically at that point. You say something like, here's the mandate. Either you get this cleaned up, or you're not going to your friend. That's not a suggestion. It's a mandate. The Lord comes to us with a mandate in regard to the Sabbath, and He mandates at the very least that one day out of every week be set aside as a day for a complete and total, you ready for this, break from all of our ordinary labors. Whatever it is that you busy yourself with or all the rest of the week and your work and all that kind of stuff, okay, none of that on this day. You still with me? Good. I often thought that, you know, maybe we should have smelling salts for this part of the message. We do have a defibrillator on campus, seriously, so just in case. No work on this day. It's a day of rest from your ordinary labors, and it's a day of worship. It is a day in which you are purposeful and intentional about reflecting upon and celebrating the great deliverance that is yours through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and this is really significant, and I think this goes to the heart of our problem with the Sabbath. Who you are through faith in Him. I think when it comes to the Sabbath, the reason that, well, they... Kind of legislated the heart out of it, and we forget that it even occurs, really is an identity issue. It was an identity issue for those guys way back then. It was the identity of their people. They were a separate people from the rest of the world, and one of the ways that they separated themselves from the rest of the world were these different things that made them distinct. So you had all kinds of dietary laws, and you had all kinds of Sabbath regulations. And then even within that group of people, They kind of looked at themselves and compared themselves with other people and said, you know, I kind of keep this stuff a little bit better than you, so that kind of makes me more important, more significant, a little bit spiritually superior perhaps to you. I think it's an identity issue for us as well. And the reason I say that is this, you can either find your identity in Jesus or you can seek to produce your own importance and create your own significance, in which case here's the symptom. Are you ready? And just compare this to yourself. The symptom of the sickness is you then become so busy that you have little if any time at all for God, and you certainly don't have an entire day to set aside for Him. That, you know, requires a defibrillator. It's like a crazy concept. I want us to think about our busyness for a minute and about our quest for importance and significance. I think sometimes it's through busyness itself that we try to produce our own importance and create our own significance. And here's what I mean by that. The busyness myth, therefore, that subconsciously drives us is, if I'm really, really busy, therefore, then I must also be really, really important and significant. Because how could I not be? Look at all of the emails. Look at all the text messages. Look at all the phone calls. Just take a look at my calendar. You want to have lunch with me? We're going to do that four months from now, maybe. Look at all the meetings that I have. Look at all the places that I have to be. Look at all the people that I get to meet. Look at all the responsibilities that are piled upon me. How can I not be important? How can I not be significant? And why is it that at times I just want to take my phone, which represents it all, and creates a situation where I just can't get away from it all, and throw it in the pool? and get on a plane, and fly to like Alaska, and get off the plane and then get on a train and ride it into the interior somewhere. And then get off the train and get in a four-wheel drive and drive up as far as I possibly can up some dirt road and then get out of the Jeep and get my big backpack with all my stuff on and then put that on, right, and then walk up as far as I can to get to somewhere where no one can possibly ask anything of me or reach me. And why is it that I know before I even get on the plane that when I arrive through all that effort there, I still won't be able to rest? And the reason is because I'm trying to produce my own importance and create my own significance, and I know deep down in my heart without that dadgum phone and my computer and ability to be available, I can't do it. And the reality is, I don't know how to rest. When I'm not working, I feel worthless, and I don't know what to do with myself. It's painful, but probably that doesn't relate to you. So, Can't imagine that. I, I can't relate to it either. So sometimes it's through busyness itself that you try to produce your own importance and create your own significance, but, but other times it's through something else that then makes you crazy busy. So I'm trying to produce my own importance and create my own significance, and the most obvious example is by being successful. But I'm going to put that in quotes because you have to define it. And here's the problem with success. It just keeps getting redefined. So I make myself crazy busy chasing this dream, and I've set the dream, and I know the level, and here's what success is. And before I even get there, I've already redefined it as something higher. Or if at least when I do reach it, that's what happens next. Because by the time I get there, I mean, the reality is all the people that I sought to impress previously, I don't really care so much about their opinions anymore. It's a whole new group of people that I'm trying to impress. They're the really important ones, and they're way up higher than my original goal. And it never ends. There's always some group of people higher than whatever you've defined as success, and you know what? They're the important ones. If I could just become one of them, then I'd be significant. So some of us are trying to produce our own importance and create our own significance by keeping busy and staying busy and being crazy busy. Others are becoming crazy busy trying to pursue something like success to do it, but But still others, I think, and you'll know who you are if this is you, are trying to produce their own importance and create their own significance by winning the approval of enough people, making and keeping just the right folks, at least, happy somehow. And so the busyness myth there is that if I can just win the approval of enough people, then, well, I'll be really important and significant because my importance and significance comes from winning the approval and keeping it of just the right people, and you become Mr. or Mrs. Everything to everyone, don't you? You are the room mom for every one of your kids in every one of their classes for every one of the years that they're in school, and I want to stop and go, I love room moms. Nothing wrong with being the room mom. I'm just trying to get behind it and say, all right, what's driving it? You're the dad that coaches every one of his kids' teams and every one of their sports and every one of the years that they're in your house and in sports. And I want to stop and say, I kind of envy you. I have like no sporting skills at all. I got nothing to offer in that regard. My son played baseball, you know, and the coach said, hey, can you help me out? I'm like, man, you're going to have to coach me, you know, before I can help out and coach the kids. But if you tell me exactly what to do and how you want it done, all right, then I'll help you out pitiful. And I envy those guys who do that. Well, I really, I do. Just get behind it for a minute. Get behind it. You're at every practice, you're at every game, you're at every event, you're at every recital, you're at every performance, you host every holiday. And then, of course, on top of that, we have social media, which is all of this on steroids. And so many of us spend so much time and effort on social media, not just having fun with it and kind of staying in contact with some of the people that, hey, you know, we'd really like to stay in contact with, but instead actively, subconsciously now, managing our image and our presentation to the world. And actually caring about things like how many friends and likes and followers we get. And actually caring about how many other people have friends and likes and followers. How many do they have? And we actually check. I wonder how many followers so and so has. Why do you wonder? Who cares? We all care. That's who. And here's why. Because we're measuring our self-worth. We're deriving our value and importance and significance by how many friends we have or whatever. And look, I I could keep going, but I think I've irritated you enough. So the the point that I'm trying to make is that Jesus is about to be very critical of the Pharisees, and it would be very easy for us to just jump on over there with Jesus and go, yep, yep. Those are the guys with the problem. They have legislated the heart right out of the Sabbath, and they've missed it entirely. And then miss the fact that, well, then we miss the Sabbath pretty much completely, and pretty much every week, and for what? Because we're too busy for God. And we're too busy, typically, trying to create something for ourselves that can only be found in Him anyway. It's ironic. It really is. So, with that in mind, we pick up our study today in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, where Luke says this. He says that on a Sabbath day, so here we go, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, he's traveling with his disciples. They're walking through somebody's grain fields. His disciples what? They plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands to break the little husks of wheat so they could get at the kernels and make for themselves a snack. But here's the problem. The Pharisees, or at least some of them who saw them do this apparently, said to Jesus' disciples, hey, why are you guys stealing somebody else's grain? Okay, that's not what they said, and that's not what they were doing. Back in the first century, they didn't have 7 they didn't have gas stations with stores, they didn't have McDonald's and Chick-fil-A that you could drive through, they didn't have rest areas that you could pull over, get something to drink, something to eat as you traveled along. They didn't have any of that stuff, you know, so they planted like fruit trees along the pathways so that travelers could pick the fruit and sustain themselves in whatever journey that they were taking. And you could, in fact, travel through somebody's grain fields. We're going to cut through this guy's grain field. We're not going to harvest his field. That would be stealing. And also that would be wrong on the Sabbath. But we can pluck a snack. That's the thinking. Except not... Of the Pharisees. So they come to Jesus' disciples and they see them do this and they're just dumbfounded. Like they say, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And when they say that, they don't mean, Why are you doing what is not lawful according to the actual law of God that's contained in the Bible regarding the Sabbath? What they mean is, Why are you not doing, or Why are you doing what is not lawful according to all the regulations that we have built around the law of God that's actually in the Bible and betray our particular interpretation of it? And which, by the way, have been accepted by the entire community. Nobody does what you're doing, at least not without rebuke. And so Jesus now jumps in and he defends his disciples and he points out that their interpretation of the Sabbath is wrong. You can imagine how difficult that must have been for them to swallow. And how empowered they must have felt against that. I mean, good grief, the whole community has accepted this interpretation, and you're the only one saying that it's wrong. But you've got to consider whose mouth it's coming out of. And he's not shy about that. So, Jesus answers them in verse 3 saying, have you not read, so he's going to give them a biblical example involving hunger and David that they cannot argue with, have you not read what David did when he was, there it is, hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, how he came into the tabernacle of the Lord and took and ate, not grains or heads of grain out of some grain field, guys. But the bread of the presence, this special bread that was created and placed before the Lord, it was holy, it was located in the holy place of the tabernacle. David took that, that which is not lawful and not according to some puny regulation you guys have come up with, but actually according to the law of God in the Bible for any but the priest to eat. David took that, he ate it, and he also gave it to those with him. Translation, hey guys, there is a principle of life at play here that needs to be considered when you're interpreting the law of God. And you guys have not considered that as you've looked at the Sabbath. And according to that principle, it's okay for hungry people not to harvest grain, but it's okay for hungry people who are traveling along to pluck a few heads of grain and you know, break them up in their hand and have a snack. It sustains life. And David himself is the example of that. My goodness, he ate the showbread. Forget about walking through a field. Your interpretation is is wrong, Jesus says, and then he hits them with the nuclear bomb. It says, and then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man, that's how he speaks of himself, he's the Son of God, but he's the Son of Man, he says, is what? Is the Lord, here we go, of the Sabbath. And so what he's saying to these guys is, look, y'all have been following me around for a while now. I mean, you may remember that, you know, I cleansed a leper. Okay, that hasn't happened since Elijah. So I sent the guy to be proclaimed clean by one of you, figured that might be a bit of a clue to you. That wasn't enough. All right, so what about the paralytic? quadriplegic? Hey, um, so that you guys might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Buddy, why don't you stand up? Pick up your mat and go home. It just keeps rolling out. And they just keep missing it. Jesus is going, guys, listen, here's the deal. I'm the Son of God. I'm the Savior of the world. And as such, I'm the author of the law of God, like I am himself the legislator. So if you're wondering whose interpretation of my law is proper, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and y'all are wrong. And in their case, what that meant is that they couldn't just set aside the heart of the Sabbath in favor of their petty little rules which in part fed their identity, but in our case it means that we can't set aside the Sabbath either in favor of our busyness, which is largely driven by our own attempts to manufacture for ourselves an important and significant identity. And so then, having claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath in verse 5, Luke now tells us in verse 6, that on another Sabbath, no doubt soon thereafter, Jesus entered the synagogue. And the synagogues were typically rectangular in shape, and there were bench seats that were created along the outside of the room. One bench, if you will, that kind of ran along the outside of the room. If you've been to Israel with us, then you've been in the synagogue in Capernaum. It's one of the places where we stop. It's one of the places where we go. It very well may be the very place that this story took place. It certainly is the place where many others took place. You can stand there where the Lord clearly stood at some point. But I want you to picture the synagogue. Jesus enters that synagogue and the seats are for the bigwigs. It's for the Pharisees. It's for the scribes. It's for the elders. It's for the religious leaders. They get the seats and we sit on the floor and he comes in and is teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered and we don't know for how long. But I don't know. I'm thinking if it's my hand, one day would be about long enough. Don't you think? Like at some point you go, "Eh, I think I've had enough of this. How long has he had this? And imagine how bad of a disability that is in an agrarian society. I can hire a guy with two hands at work or one. Hmm. Socially, there's indignity attached to this. It's a big deal. So Jesus enters the synagogue. He's teaching, and a man is there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched Jesus carefully to see whether or not He would heal this man on the Sabbath, and they actually want Him to. They don't care a thing about this man. That's clear. What they care about is finding some kind of a charge, a formal charge that they can bring now against Jesus as a violation of the Sabbath that community-wide everybody's bought into. So that's exactly what it says, so that they might find a reason to accuse Him, because here's what they're thinking. They're thinking, this time your principle of life, Jesus, is not going to absolve you. Of healing this man because, look, he's not hungry. (laughs) He's not starving. He's not having a heart attack, so you don't have to heal him. He has a withered hand. It's probably been that way for years and years, maybe decades, maybe all of his life. You don't have to do this to save his life. You can wait until tomorrow, and incidentally, healing on the Sabbath, except if it's going to save a life, well, that was prohibited. And Jesus here, who knew their thoughts, I'll tell you what else he knew. He knew the suffering of that man. He knew the indignity of that man. He knew the social and economic consequences that he had suffered. He knew exactly how it had come to be that his hand was withered and exactly how long it had been withered. And I'll tell you what else he does on the cross His hands too are disabled. For this man and for me and for you. It's fascinating how in Jesus' healings, He's collecting up things that He Himself then reproduces. In the cross, He heals a leper whose skin is mutilated. Is his skin not mutilated? He heals a paralytic. And is He not made immobile? He heals a withered hand. And again, nails are driven through His hands. They become useless to him. There is a cost to what Jesus does for every one of these people, every one of us, and for this man too. Jesus knows their thoughts. And so he says to this man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And the way that I imagine it anyway is Jesus is in the middle of this room and he calls the man up and the Pharisees and the scribes are beginning to drool thinking, all right. He's going to break our law how sick is that the man rose and stood there and Jesus said to the scribes and to the Pharisees I ask you now he's going to expand it a bit is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm to save life or to destroy it now nobody's mentioned life here but they're going to conspire curiously enough on a Sabbath day to take Jesus' life. (laughs) Truly, he reveals their hearts. Just like Simeon had said that he would when his parents brought him to the temple to be circumcised. So Jesus says to the, wither, to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, and Mark tells us, in anger. He's angry with these guys, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. He said to this man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was fully restored, sort of like the paralytic. You know, he didn't need to go into a rehab facility and build up his musculature. It's just, boom, done, amazing, incredible. And then instead of recognizing that Jesus is undeniably, I, mean, I don't know how much more these guys need to see, the Son of God and the Savior of the world and the Lord of the Sabbath, whose interpretation of the Sabbath really needs to be respected and followed as opposed to their own. And then rejoicing with this man and with his family, It says that the scribes and the Pharisees were filled with fury. They, too, were angry and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus, this Lord of the Sabbath, who is so very critical of their interpretation of it, but I think not just of theirs. They've missed the heart for sure. But we need to take to heart the fact that, well, we've kind of missed it altogether. We're too busy for God. and for his day. And you say, all right, well, then what do we do about that? Because, you know, this would be a terrible place to just stop. Amen. Let's pray. Um, what's the remedy? And I think the remedy in part is for you and I, first of all, to embrace the fact that our importance and significance really and truly and can only come from Christ. And to reflect on that daily. Oh, and on his day. It's to take the heart, the reality, and to meditate upon all of the profound implications of the fact that, just to use a few examples, we are indeed the children of God. We are actually sons and daughters of the King. We are the purchase of heaven, the bride of Christ. We are the ones for whom God, and the undeserving ones for whom God poured out His blood unto death, that he might purchase us, that we might be his. We are the ones that the scriptures come to us and say, hey, your heavenly father, through faith in Jesus, okay, here's how he sees you. He rejoices over you with singing and with dancing on and on and on it goes. My goodness, the value and the significance and the importance and all of those things that are just sitting there waiting for us to grab hold of and to take deeply down into our souls where in fact, We do desire need as human beings to feel like our lives actually matter. So the first thing we need to do is to embrace the fact that our importance and significance comes entirely from Jesus and that trying to produce it from ourselves is like drinking sand, man. I mean, it does not satisfy your thirst. It creates more of it. And then secondly, I think that we need to embrace our own finitude, meaning our own limitations. We all have them, and at the same time embrace the unlimited or the infinitude of the Lord, His unlimited capacities, His ability to do all things. We need to finally and fully, I think, embrace the fact that we live in a world that was supernaturally created, that is in fact supernaturally sustained, and that a living, present God supernaturally moves and works and operates in and factor that into our lives and practically speaking even into our schedules and trust God even with our time. Those are the kinds of realities that should allow us to come home, you know, at the end of the day from wherever it is that you're coming home from. And to take that thing that buzzes and beeps and rings and dings and, you know, it's like crack. I mean, you just, you almost can't ignore it. It's unbelievable. And to throw it in a basket, like one guy was telling me that he does with the rest of his family. Let's all put our phones in the basket for 30 minutes. That's it. Do we need the defibrillator or are we good? And we're going to have dinner together and actually interact and maybe, crazy, just leave it there for another 30 minutes and help clean up afterwards. Help one of the kids with their homework, you know, like until they're done. Go out in the street and play basketball with your son or daughter or whatever until the sun goes down. It should allow you to have a dinner date, you know, with your son or daughter every once in a while and leave your phone in the car or worse, just leave it at home. Should allow you maybe to even go out of town for a couple of days with your husband or wife, maybe with the whole fam, and turn it off. You ever done that? I actually did that about this time last year. Beth and I went out of town with Matt and Dee Dee which is ridiculous and fun. And um, there's no way you're not going to have a good time with them. But beforehand, Matt and I conspired together. I said, look, man, let's just turn these things off. We'll tell the kids if you need mom or you need us you just call mom, you know. We'll tell Ken here at the church if the building burns down. All right, call Beth or Dee, but other than that we're just not going to do it. So we got in the car, we're making all kinds of phone calls and we're writing text messages and emails and telling everybody we're not going to be available and all that stuff. And then we put them on airplane mode and set them on the counter when we walked in this amazing place that somebody put us in. And we left it there two nights, 3 days. And the most amazing thing happened, like, both of the mornings when we were there. It was incredible. The sun came up. I did not expect it. You are only indispensable until you're not, until you say no, or until you blow up, or until you die. And then do you know what happens? I've done a lot of funerals a lot. Sun comes up the next day. It's a remarkable occurrence, and somehow everything kind of carries on without you. It's very humbling, isn't it? Tell you what else it should do. It should allow you to have enough time to spend with your God every day, and it should allow you to get it all done in six days. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work and then put it away for a day. Here's what rest is, guys. Rest is the opportunity that every one of us has, and the Sabbath gives it to us, to trust God's work on our behalf more than we trust our own. There it is. So we need to embrace the fact that our importance and significance comes entirely from Jesus and quit trying to build it for ourselves. And letting that make us crazy. And then to embrace our own limitations. I have them. You have them. Embrace them while at the same time embracing God's unlimited capacities to get things done in miraculous and amazing ways. And to trust Him to do that as you follow Him in obedience, spending time with Him as He calls you to do, and giving Him his day, okay? Because he is God, and uh, and I'm not, and neither are you. And what you see in these stories is that by his words, he heals withered hands. What you'll see in your own life is that by his rest, he heals your withered hearts. Keep that in mind. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the Savior who um, entered into this world as one of us. God, who can sympathize with us in all of our weakness, and yet, praise the Lord, completely and utterly and fully without sin. One who was nailed to the cross for our afflictions, who experienced anxieties on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for him and pray that you might give us the faith necessary to love him rightly, to trust him fully, and to follow him obediently. Lord, to give him our schedules and to give him ourselves, to find our importance and significance in him and all of the freedom that comes from the ability to do that and, Lord, to find rest. Heal our withered hearts, we pray, withered by way too much busyness. Heal them in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.